Well, thank you for joining me in prayer. We're going to be in the book of Philemon today, continuing our journey through that book. I hope it was a good beginning for you last week. I know I've been challenged. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. The book of Philemon can be found on page 1,000. Look at that, 1,000 in your house Bibles. If you've got a house Bible, and Jimmy Lee will pass one around for you. You know, one of the most amazing stories of human forgiveness in all of Scripture, there's many stories of forgiveness, but when I say human forgiveness, I say that because I think it, um, this particular story touches on some of those variables that are just very human, the emotion that comes along with forgiveness. One of the stories that comes to mind when I think of forgiveness at a human level is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. If you don't know the story of Joseph, let me walk through it. Joseph was the youngest of a number of brothers, and he did what a lot of young brothers do. He had a little bit of a snarky attitude about him, and the older brothers didn't particularly like that. One day when all the brothers were out in a field away from the home, the older brothers threw the youngest brother into a ditch. They were debating what to do, whether they should leave him for dead or do something worse, and they decided to do potentially something worse. They sold him into slavery to Egyptians who happen to be passing by. His youngest brother gets sold into slavery. So we're talking human trafficking at this point. Joseph gets brought to Egypt away from his home. The dad is back home thinking the son has died. The older brothers think they've gotten away with this incredible crime. Joseph finds his way into Egypt. Next thing you know in Joseph's story, he's being accused of attempted rape, falsely. He didn't do anything. In fact, it was the reverse. A woman had tried to kind of make the moves on Joseph, but Joseph gets accused and gets thrown into an Egyptian prison for years. An Egyptian prison. This is thousands of years ago. There he is, wallowing away in a dungeon. You want to talk about human suffering, you think about that young boy, ripped from his family, his brothers who had turned on him, now this awful accusation. By God's providence, God was not done with Joseph. God had a plan for Joseph, and God raised Joseph up. He interpreted a series of dreams for Pharaoh, and and as we know, was actually a historical record. We've seen in, in Egyptian history, Pharaohs raising up what once were essentially slaves in Egypt, foreigners, to be over and to be ultimate commanders of the entire Egyptian economy, that happened to Joseph as well. That happened another time historically, and it happened with Joseph. And he became one of the most important men in Egyptian history, and he would lead the Egyptians and the known world at the time through a terrible drought where nations would come to get food from Egypt, and Joseph was put in charge of this. There's this scene that happens late in the book of Genesis, where the brothers who originally sold Joseph into slavery come before to Egypt to get food because there's a drought in their land and they need food. And so they present themselves before Joseph, but they don't realize it's him, probably because Joseph was done up in the Egyptian garb. He probably had gold paint all over his face like the Egyptian royalty did back then. And they're standing before Joseph, and it tells us in Genesis 42, 24, listen to this in that moment. Then Joseph turned away from them and wept. This little verse. Joseph is suddenly being confronted by deep wounds of the heart that he had never fully dealt with. Here's a man who literally is probably, outside of Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the known world at the time. He's risen up to the top of the game. And here he is, presented with a handful of men with deep wounds from his past. And he can't bear it. He weeps. He, he puts his brothers through a handful of tests to find out if they've 
become repentant or not. The next few chapters are interesting. You're watching Joseph play this thing out in his mind. What's he going to do with these brothers? Is he ready to forgive them? And all the while, there's this feeling of weeping taking place, dealing with these deep wounds. Then in Genesis 45, 1 to 3, listen to this. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so loud that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph finally said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? He cries so hard and so loud that the Egyptian Pharaoh's court hears him weeping over being confronted by the reality of opening up those deep wounds and finally offering forgiveness to his brothers. I love the Bible because it's so real. Isn't it real? Don't you read these stories and you just say there's something very human about it. The Bible doesn't try to cover up our frailty. It doesn't try to cover up how messy and broken life is. It doesn't try to cover up the emotions we feel when sometimes we just want to cry so loud that we just need a room to go to where hopefully no one can hear us, but probably the neighbors are hearing us. It doesn't cover that stuff up. It it touches on real life. The reality is for Joseph is that when you begin to forgive somebody, you're going into your emotional core. you got to open up wounds because forgiveness means you've been abused, whether to a light degree or to a great degree by someone. And to go to that place, you need to open it up, and there's danger in doing that. You can't truly forgive someone unless you're willing to put true spiritual work into it. Bitterness and anger, if left unchecked, become poison to the human soul. They don't allow you to move forward. Forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, is the medicine. The Bible talks about forgiveness all the time, but what's interesting is that it never comes out directly and tells you this is how you do it. Isn't that interesting? It's really messy. Uh, It never says, hey, if you want to forgive somebody, it tells us all the time to forgive. Jesus regularly said, I want you to forgive. I command you to forgive. Yet he never comes out and says, here's how you forgive, right? You label the sin, okay, so label it, put words to it. Then you confront the person, okay, then you do that. Then you have a conversation. It doesn't do that. It never gives us this seminar on forgiveness, but it does give us a lot of interesting lessons we can learn about people who have gone down this journey before us, principles that we can apply and begin to understand what this messy journey of forgiveness looks like. John MacArthur, a well-known pastor, tried to define forgiveness for us, and he puts it this way. Forgiveness is a promise. It's a promise never to take revenge It's a statement of love that affirms, I hold no anger, no hatred, or bitterness against you. Forgiveness has a threefold perspective. It says, I won't even bring it up to you, I won't even bring it up to anybody else, and I won't even bring it up to myself. By that definition, how many of you can say you've truly forgiven someone who's actually hurt you? I won't bring it up to you, I won't bring it up to anybody else. And I won't even bring it up to myself. You know, I like that definition. We could put a lot of Bible around that definition if we wanted to. We could dig for scriptures to try to support that definition. But I want to leave that kind of in the background for us. And we are going to dig into the book of Philemon. Now, Philemon, as we saw last week, is this incredible story of forgiveness. While it doesn't come out directly and say, this book is about forgiveness, it's an entire book that actually is the story of forgiveness, very particularly in a very practical way. 
as we went over the entire story last week at kind of a high level, let me review it and open it up for us again so we kind of have a bit of context. The book of Philemon is written by Paul, one of the guys who wrote much of the New Testament. It's only one page long, right? That's why we're, we're spending just three weeks going through this one-page book. And Paul wrote this handwritten letter while he was in prison in Rome. He wrote it to a man that he had previously converted to Christianity, a man named Philemon, who was living in Colossae. And Philemon was kind of a well-to-do guy. He was a wealthier guy that had a church that met in his home, and he had a number of bond servants, essentially slaves in those days, people who had tied themselves to Philemon in order to have work and sustenance and food and a house over their heads, and they committed to working for him for a, a, a season. Philemon had these bond servants that were working for him. One of them was named Onesimus. And Onesimus had run away from Philemon and run away from his commitment to serve in his house. It's, it's suggested, based on a few of the verses, that Philemon may have even stolen something. Now, we dealt kind of at length last week with this idea of being a bondservant, and I encourage you, if you have questions on that, to check last week's sermon out. But what happens to Onesimus is he runs away to Rome, and he thinks that he can just hide away in Rome. It's a big city. No one will ever find him there. But by God's providence and sovereignty, what happens? Onesimus runs into Paul, who's on house arrest in Rome. And Paul brings Onesimus to Christ. Now, Onesimus is his follower of Christ, and he's saying, well, I've sinned against Philemon. I ran away, and potentially I stole something from him. We don't know if that happened or not. What do I do now? And Paul tells Onesimus, Onesimus, you're a brother in Christ. He's a brother in Christ. I want you to go back repentant to Philemon and ask for forgiveness and take this letter with you. And in this letter, Paul is going to suggest to Philemon that Philemon fully forgive Onesimus. That whatever debt Onesimus has racked up with Philemon, that he just fully forgive it. In fact, later on in the book, he's going to say, if he owes you anything, consider that a debt that I'll pay, says Paul. I want full forgiveness, no recollection of it in the past. That's the high-level story about this. Last week, as we dug into Philemon, we look at verses 1 through 7, and we pulled out two characteristics of somebody who's learning to forgive. Number one, they have a growing and deep love and affection for Jesus Christ. And number two, they have a growing and deep love and affection for Jesus Christ's church. If those two things are true inside your heart, you have a heart that is ripe to be somebody who's learning to forgive someone biblically. Today, we want to look into how, how we can actually go down this journey. And I'm going to actually pull out four principles of forgiveness that might be surprising. Four principles of forgiveness that I think you can take with you going from here. Number one, we're going to start in verse eight. Principle number one. When you forgive, we root ourselves, we root our forgiveness in love and not law. You root your forgiveness in love and not law. Jump in with me to verses 8 through 10. Accordingly, says Paul, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, if you will, let me just jump down to verse 14. He says, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. There's an interesting juxtaposition there, isn't there? Paul says, I could tell you what you ought to do. That's the language that he uses there. He says, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, namely to forgive Onesimus and receive him back as a brother. He says, that's not what I'm going to appeal to here. 
Rather, I'm going to appeal to your love. I'm going to appeal to your love. This is what you ought to do. This is your Christian duty. Yet I'm going to appeal to you to forgive him out of a place of love and not law. You know, I'm always amazed when I see people who can forgive almost instantaneously. I'll never forget, I actually met this pastor a handful of years ago. There was a story that ran out of Indianapolis. There was a young man, a guy my age, young pastor in Indianapolis. I had met him in Chicago at a bookstore a couple years before. And his wife had been murdered. Uh, I, re- I saw the news and I, re- I remember waking up in the morning reading the news and thinking, I met that guy. I remember meeting him. His wife had been murdered in Indianapolis. That night, the next day, actually, he was on the news and all the national news offering forgiveness to this man. I was just, whoa. I mean, I, w- I was just really relating to this guy because he's a young pastor in Indy. I'm a young pastor in Chicago and I'm just thinking, Man, that guy's got a gift of forgiveness. I don't know what I'd be doing, but I don't know if I'd be doing that. Some people seem to have this gift of forgiveness, where it's almost like God has brought them to such a level of maturity, perhaps, or maybe he's just given them this gift of spiritual forgiveness. Maybe they're experiencing the gospel to such a degree where they just have this ability to genuinely forgive, to offer real forgiveness to someone and mean it from their heart. But others don't have that quite ability just yet. For some of us, we are very slow to forgive, and there's a lot of emotional work that has to get done. I've seen other people get up and offer forgiveness right away, but actually they were doing it out of law, thinking this is what I'm supposed to be doing, and they never actually dealt, like they never had a chance to vent their anger and like yell. Like you ever read Lamentations in the Bible? Just yell, I'm so angry at this. They never took that moment. And so because they thought the law told them they were supposed to forgive right away, they bypassed all the emotional journey that takes place with something that's raw like forgiveness. They covered it all up, bottled it inside, and then what happens is years later it comes out in the goofiest of ways because you never dealt with the wound. Jesus gives us this amazing advice in Matthew chapter 5, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. When talking about anger, when talking about people that we would think we shouldn't forgive, right? He says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 45. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You know, it's very hard to hate someone who you're praying for. You know that? It's very hard to, over a long period of time, continue to hold anger and bitterness for someone that you're lifting up by name. That's hard to do. God has a way of using prayer to bring about transformation in our own heart where we begin seeing this person in a different light and through a different perspective. In fact, what we oftentimes find is the very things we're praying for someone, we end up being the solutions to. Did you know that? So often the things you're praying for, eventually God says, well, there you are. Go take care of it. You're the method of healing I'm going to bring in that person's life. When you've been wronged by somebody, one of, there's kind of two top most basic forms of feelings and emotions and ideas that come into our heart. And especially if you've been wronged to a great degree, if you've really experienced abuse at someone's hands. One is anger, and the other is a desire for justice. Can you guys relate to those two feelings? I can. One is anger, and one is a desire for justice. I'm so angry that this happened. I'm so angry that this happened to somebody I love. And I want this to be set right. I want them to pay for what they did. I want things to be set right, and I want everyone to know that this was wrong. Anger and a desire for justice. 
And, you know, as your pastor, I want to let you know, you have permission to feel those things. You know that? You know, we have an entire book in the Old Testament, Psalms. You dig into the Psalms, some of the Psalms Christians don't know what to do with because it's got that kind of language in it. It's got language like this. God, I'm so angry right now. I can't believe he did that to me. I wish he was dead. You know that's in the Psalms? There, there is a place to actually have anger over things that are taking place in your life. There is not a place to hold on to that for all eternity. God invites us into a space to be angry and desire justice and to bring that before the Lord and to open up the Psalms and realize we're not the first person to go down this road. Other people have been here. They've wrestled with these emotions. And in the Psalms, they're submitting those thoughts and those emotions to God so that God can transform our emotions. See, see Scripture says, be angry and do not sin. There's a space to be angry over the sin in the world, especially when it's been done to you, and submit those feelings to God so that he can begin to transform your emotions. See, what happens to us so often is that we forget that God transforms people, and we forget that God transforms us. He's actually able to take feelings of a desire to see wrong come on somebody that are natural when something happens to you. We're fallen. We don't have the, we are not divine, Right? There's these real world, real broken people doing life that we submit those emotions to God and allow him to hear them. I'll never forget one of my best friends one time. He was seeing a counselor. He came up to me. He said, Rafe, i got to show you something. He goes, I need you to read this journal entry I wrote last night. I read the journal entry. Man, tough. A lot of anger in that journal entry. A lot of curse words in that journal entry. And you know what, he, you know, it was one of the most freeing things in the world. He wrote it out to God, and then he shared it with me. Oh, what a moment of brotherhood. What a moment of brotherhood. To write it, share it with someone, say, this is real. Now let's submit this to the Lord together. And then God brings about this powerful transformation. This is what Paul is appealing to with Philemon. He's saying, Philemon, you have a right to be angry over someone who has done a wrong to you. But I'm appealing to you to go before the Lord and out of love bring forgiveness to this person. Now, how do we do that? Let me give you a sample prayer. You might begin praying. It goes like this. So come up behind me. Jesus, evil has been committed against me. My limited human tendency is to want to make this person my enemy, to seek revenge. But right now, I'm feeling chaos internally. I want to learn what it means to forgive out of love and not simply law. Would you form this in me? As part of this process, I pray for this person by name. Though I may feel this person does not deserve my prayers right now, your word compels me to pray for my enemy. Would you open pathways for restoration and full healing? Jesus brings full healing. Number one, forgiveness should be rooted in love and not law. Number two, this will be short because we touched on this kind of in depth last week, but he, he brings it up again. Number two, pray and believe that God can bring about full transformation in a person's life. Pray and believe that God can bring about full transformation in a person's life. Verses 10 to 13. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Onesimus was the runaway bondservant whose father I became in my imprisonment. And then he has this parenthesis. He says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending back my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. 
All right, what does that little parenthesis mean? Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you. Paul's doing a pun on Onesimus' name. The name Onesimus literally in the Greek means useful. Useful. That's what his name meant. He was a useful man to have around. And Paul says, look, God has breathed entire new meaning into this person's name. Entire new meaning. And he says, not only is he useful to you in the flesh, but he's useful to you in the Lord. This guy, Onesimus, who used to not even know Jesus, now not only is he going to be the hardest worker you have, because that's what Christians do, they're the hardest workers, but on top of that, he's going to be a witness to Jesus Christ. He is useful to you not only as a worker in your house, but he's useful to you in the Lord. So much so, says the Apostle Paul, I want him with me. I'm going around as a missionary planting churches. I need Onesimus next to me. That's how powerful this guy is. Now, think of someone in your life who you're having a hard time forgiving. Got them pinned? Someone in your life who maybe they're not a follower of Christ. Maybe they've wronged you and you've kind of written them off. A story like Onesimus. If God can get a hold of Onesimus and turn him from someone who ran away from his duties, possibly stole something, and turn him into one of the most faithful witnesses. You want to know what most commentators say about Onesimus? They're not certain about this. But there was a a bishop in Ephesus in the early first century named Onesimus. And a lot of commentators say it's got to be the same guy. That's the story of what happened to Onesimus. If God can do that to Onesimus, what can he do to the people that have wronged you? You see, there's such a power there. When we stop praying for simply, I want this to be made right, and we start praying, I want them to know Jesus. I want them to become a witness for Christ and sent out as a missionary. I want them to hold the gospel even firmer and dearer than I do and be a warrior for the faith. That changes everything, everything in your heart. You can't see the person the same way. You start praying for them. God can bring about full transformation in a person's life. That changes the way you pray. Number three, this one's fascinating, and I have been wrestling with this a lot. This deserves about ten sermons, and I'll keep coming back to it. Number three, reflect on God's sovereignty over the issue. Reflect on God's sovereignty over the issue. Philemon, verses 15 to 16. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and the Lord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while. What's Paul saying? Paul's making the point, he's saying, look, you couldn't see it when Onesimus ran away and stole something from you. You didn't see it. You didn't know what story God was writing. All you knew is that you felt wronged and you had anger towards this man. But knowing the God we know, says Paul, couldn't it be that this is the very reason he allowed this wrong to take place? That through the brokenness of Onesimus' actions, a greater glory would come about? Maybe in the thing that you were holding anger over, Philemon, that very act was actually needed to bring about a greater glory that you would never be able to see in the moment because you were filled with anger. But years later, looking back in hindsight, you can see God was using that to bring about a greater glory. If only we had the eyesight of God, right? (laughs) Because in the moment, it's really hard. But Paul here says, perhaps, perhaps, God was writing a story with greater glory. 
Now, this is talking about the sovereignty of God. What do I mean by sovereignty? I mean that God is in control of all things. There's not one maverick molecule, says R.C. Sproul, in the entire universe. There's not one rogue molecule that's just kind of out there floating around without God's hand over it, orchestrating things to write his story that he's writing. And God is able to use wicked and evil actions to bring about a greater glory. Two case in points. You ready? Joseph. Remember Joseph, who I talked about in the opening illustration? Joseph had tremendous evil brought on him. You know what Joseph says at the end of Genesis? After all is said and done, once he's been reconciled to his brothers, once he's kind of made amends with his brothers, and everything's back to the way it should be. Genesis chapter 45, verse 5. Joseph says to his brothers, And now, brothers, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me here. Read that. God sent me here before you to preserve life. How about this one? Genesis verse 50, chapter 50, verse 20. Here he says it again. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Remember his story. Sold into human trafficking, falsely accused of crimes he didn't commit, and thrown into an Egyptian prison thousands of years ago for many years. You meant it for evil, but God used it for good. See, God is able to use what other people mean out of intentional, sinful, wicked actions as they would have been. He's able to use them for good. See, this changes the dynamic. That's the God we serve. We've got to know God is sovereign. Otherwise, we're wildly out of control in this life. See, this is how atheists respond to problems. They think they're out of control. And then the world buries down on them and they say, I've got nothing to stand on. There's no control. Everyone's against me. Not the Christian. The Christian says, God allows evil and wicked in our life for a greater glory and that he is in control. Think of Jesus. Second case in point. Jesus. The, the most incredible moment of sin in human history is when we crucify Jesus on the cross. God in the flesh comes down, lives a perfect life of righteousness among him, and we crucified the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. We crucified him. We killed him for crimes that he didn't commit. Later on, the disciples in Acts chapter 2, when, when giving their first sermon, Peter giving his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, he says this about the crucifixion of Jesus. This Jesus delivered up according to the, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so here we have the very greatest evil that's ever taken place, the crucifixion of Jesus, written by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, totally in control. The crucifixion of Jesus, the throwing of Joseph into slavery, whatever issues you have going on in your life where you want to hold bitterness and anger in your heart over that person, it is not a curveball to God that he's trying to figure out how do I respond. That's not the God we serve. By the definite plan and foreknowledge, God is writing all things. See, why is this important? This changes everything. Paul goes here with Philemon. This is the exact place he's going to and what he's appealing to for Philemon to offer forgiveness. That perhaps God permitted this to take place in order to bring about a greater glory. This is one of great, Satan's greatest lies. Is that he, he wants us to believe in our brokenness. That we're on our own. 
that, that, that we are the only solution that we have and that ultimately we're out of control and that God is someone we should distance ourselves from when wrong has been committed against us. So often that's what happens. We go into fight mode or flight mode, right? One of the two happens when, when terrible things happen in our life. We either want to fight the person, take it on ourselves, or run away from God entirely. Many of us in our pain, we draw away from God. We become disappointed that somehow God has let us down. That somehow we deserve better. And when we do that, we're missing the moment to actually draw our, in our closest moments to a God who knows everything about us and has promised to, to be with us in the midst of it. See, when we draw away from God, all the power of the kingdom that is available to us to experience transformation, to experience healing, comfort, and power, all of that is hindered. Our great hope, the greatest hope we have when we've been victimized is that there is a God who is utterly in control and leading this to a greater glory. If you don't hold that hope open, you have nothing. If you don't hold that hope open, there is no hope. But when you know that God is in control and that he is able to write a story for greater glory, then you can go back to the moments of being a victim where someone has sinned against you. And you can say, I don't know the story because I'm not God. I don't have those eyes. But I know that God is God. He's proven himself to me. And he has a greater story that he's writing. In those moments of prayer that we might consider praying might go something like this. Jesus, I could never comprehend the fullness of your wisdom. I couldn't. I cannot see all things and in their interconnectedness. But my anchor in the midst of my pain is that you can. More than that, that you do. Whatever glory you are bringing about, I pray for its fullness to be revealed in me and through me. Teach me to find peace in the reality that you are ultimately in control. Heal my wounded heart as only you can. Number three was this. Reflect on God's sovereignty over the issue. Fourth and finally, when inside the church, recognize it's a family issue. When inside the church, that means when it's Christians speaking to Christians, recognize this is a family issue. Now before I even dig into this one in the text, this is important because much of the conflict that we have in the church, the division that occurs, even between those sitting in this room, is from one Christian to another. And here's the problem. We're not yet glorified. We're still a bunch of sinners in a room who are in the process of not only being just, we've been justified by God, but we're still being transformed. That means we still got a lot of baggage that we bring us with us into these relationships. And can I say this? Especially in a diverse church like this, we got a whole lot of learning to do and baggage that we bring into this. I can tell you as a pastor, as we've taken this journey of being a diverse church and actually learning what that means, learning to lay down the things and the ways we see we should be doing things around here, and actually bring in different voices, different opinions, different thoughts, deal with reconciliation the right way, see issues through different lenses. As we've done that, woo, conflict comes up. Do you know that? When you get into a diverse family, conflict comes up. Because we got a whole lot of minds with a whole bunch of different stories coming in and trying to figure life out together. It's messy. But when inside the church, we recognize it's a family issue. Philemon, verse 16. He says this, For this, perhaps, verse 15, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. 
Now consider this for a second. We're going to spend an entire sermon next week talking about power structures between people, about a guy like Philemon and a guy like Onesimus. But just for a moment, think of this. Philemon was a well-off guy in Colossae with a home and people working for him. He would have been well thought of by outsiders. He was a leader in the community. That's probably what Philemon was like. And Onesimus was kind of like just a worker in his house. He didn't have much prestige to his name. He didn't have a lot of possessions. He could run away and pretty much not take anything with him. He didn't have possibly, as much as we can tell, he didn't have the prestige that a guy like Philemon would have. There was this division in the eyes of the world between the two of them. And yet Paul says, when you receive him back, he's your brother. He's your brother. This is your family now. Everything changes. And when it becomes family, everything changes. My wife and I have been saying this for a long time. Ever, we, we adopted into our family two young African-American girls. And ever since we brought them into our family, can I tell you what's happened? I can't see the news the same way. I can't. It was before it was issues. There were issues I deeply was compassionate and felt about and I wanted to fight for and go to war for. Man, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's fight this good battle together. When it became my family, oh, now I, I weep. We, we cry when we watch the news. That didn't used to happen. Family changes everything. When you realize that the person sitting next to you is your brother, now there's a whole different perspective. It, Jesus tells us this parable. He, it's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. Such an important parable. And the parable goes like this. I'm going to paraphrase it because it's a longer parable to tell. But there was a servant who worked for a master. And that servant owed the master a large sum of money, 10,000 talents. It was so much money that he couldn't pay it back pretty much in his lifetime. He just didn't have the means to do it. And the master came down. He said, well, if you can't pay it back, I need justice. And so I'm going to sell your family. I'm going to do whatever I can so that I can try to get some means from you. And the servant is beside himself. He goes, it's too much for me to bear. Please just forgive me. Will you just forgive me? I'll find a way to get it together. And the master looks down and he has compassion on this servant. He says, I'll tell you what. You're fully cleared. You owe me nothing. I forgive you. Grace upon grace. It's, for, it's yours. You're free. That servant goes out, and he goes to one of his servants. See, he had servants that responded to him. And he goes, and he, he begins saying, hey, you owe me money to the younger servant, the guy who had been forgiven. He goes, he says, hey, you, my servant, you owe me a whole lot of money. And the second servant looks to the first servant and says, I don't have it. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And the first servant refuses to offer forgiveness. He refuses. He says, then I'm going to impute justice on you. I'm going to carry this out to the farthest degree. Jesus commenting on this says in Matthew 18, Then his master, that's the master of the first servant, summoned him and said to him, the first servant, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, should, you, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, when we know the gospel story, when we understand brothers in here and family, everything changes. The gospel story is that we're that first servant, right? We are the ones who had a great debt before God, but God did not charge us our debt and make us pay that to the full degree. A, a punishment that none of us could bear. It would be too much if we even knew the half of it. But rather he sent Jesus to pay it on our behalf. And what happened when Jesus paid our debt in full is that we got grace upon grace. 
We got love and forgiveness given to us in full. Debt wiped clean. You owe me nothing, says God. You don't have to earn anything with me. You're fully washed clean. And now we're that first servant. And now brothers and sisters in Christ look at each other across the room and we wonder, are we going to offer forgiveness to one another? You might say, well, you don't know the wrong that he's committed to me. No, you don't know the wrong you committed to God. You don't know the half of it. If you knew your own sin before God and the forgiveness you got, you would never make that statement. Forgiveness is messy, broken, and can take years of working through emotions. But as Christians, it's a family issue in the church. We treat each other as brothers. Now, I want to take one moment here, and I'm running out of time, to make a very important point. What do we do when the person is unrepentant? In this situation, Onesimus is repentant. He's coming back and he wants forgiveness. But what do you do when you've been wronged by somebody and they're not repentant? That can paralyze us. Because you want them to make the first move. You want to see them transform first. Let me read to you what William Countryman, who wrote a great book, I referenced it last week. It's called Forgiven and Forgiving. He says this about that situation. When the wrongdoer will not cooperate in a process of reconciliation, let the person go. Your own path is peace. You are not enslaved to the past. God has called you in peace. God has called you to life. Look about for the signs and opportunities of that life and live it. Forgiveness is a gift that turns out to benefit the giver even more than the receiver since it, it frees us of having to be slaves to the past. It is a direct expression of the increasing richness of our lives with God. I started off by telling you that sometimes we can hold bitterness and anger towards someone so long in our heart that it becomes poison in our soul. And it be, we become slaves to this, you know, this villain in our life that we never let go. I've experienced this personally. I understand. And, and what God wants us to do is to be free from that and to allow Jesus to actually transform our emotions and our thoughts and our entire being that we no longer hold it against them. And if you don't believe it can happen, you have to go on this journey with me of forgiveness. He can transform you. What prayer might we pray for that? You know, Jesus actually gave us a prayer. And in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, when he was teaching us how to pray, he says, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Doesn't he say that? Right in the middle of Jesus' direct teaching of how should we pray, he says those incredible words. I want to invite us as I close out today, I want us to pray that prayer together. It's going to come up behind me. Will you read this prayer with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. God, we recognize that as we dig into a topic like this, of forgiveness, that we have a long ways to go. I have a long ways to go. But God, as we pull out these principles from Philemon, I pray that we would not just go on with our day, as if we can just go on without hearing the word of God, that your spirit would bring about transformation right now, that wherever we need conviction, wherever we've been holding off anger and bitterness over somebody because of wrongs in the past, would we learn in this moment to submit them to the spirit and know that you are able to even turn those sins God, into something for a greater glory. God, we want to be those people that are learning to forgive because that's the greatest corner we hold on the market. God, that we are forgivers, like we've received forgiveness from you. God, I pray that we would be those people. 
Form that in us this morning, I pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.